Hello and welcome to Weird Flicks, but okay. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Eric. And today we want to talk about The Shining, but we do have also a third person. Hi. <laughs> this is Andrew. Hit me. Hi, Andrew. So we brought him on today because he has actually never seen The Shining. Yeah, this is a really exciting experience for us to get to watch The Shining with uh, someone who's seeing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's always very exciting when you see a classic movie with someone who's never seen that movie before. Um, So we wanted to get sort of a first impression on a movie that... Not a ton of people have, like, first impressions yeah, about these Yeah, it's so rare to find someone that hasn't seen this. And that's not a dig. Not at all. Oh, no. No. No, I'm just a, I'm just like a virgin. So yeah, that's fine. fine. <laughs> We're Movie popping virgin. your shining cherry. <laughs> I'm making a grimace right now. Uh, all right. Andrew, okay, hi. so The Shining, Stanley Kubrick, not the TV version, yes, to be clear. Yes, the 1980... Film by Stanley Kubrick that Stephen King is not a fan of. Yeah, based on the book by Stephen King. Um, interestingly, so King isn't really a fan of the movie, but also I don't think Kubrick was a, huge a fan super of fan of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these are definitely kind of their own entities yep. with just in the same family, I guess. Yeah. They happen to be <laughs> called events. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Andrew, let's get your impressions. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, first, uh, I wanted more of Tony. Mm. I didn't know what he was exactly. He just they just say he lives in his mouth. I'm like, yeah. Okay, that's an interesting place. Tell to me live. more about the that's boy. That's a nice in your little mouth. residence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, what can he do? Like, mm. he has a great power. I don't know what that is. I want to see it. So that's interesting because I feel like you're also you haven't read the book, right? No. Which I also haven't done. Also, I haven't. Okay, so none of us have read the book, but my assumption has always been that the book does much more to explain what the shining, quote-unquote, is, which therefore would explain, like, what Tony is Mm. and what Scatman Crowther's character can do. And, you know, he briefly describes in the movie, like, I could shine talk with my relative and... He somehow knew that Danny could do it too, and Tony, I think, is Danny's. You know, he's he's doing the classic child thing of like creating a personality, um, like an alternate personality or an imaginary friend. But in his case, it happens to like actually be something that has like prescience and conscience, consciousness, and you know, precognition, sort of. Um, but as far as what exactly that does, you're right. The movie doesn't really explain it at all. It sort of, like, hints at it. But it's the same thing that it, with, like, the Indian burial ground thing. Where it's just like, oh, so this was on Indian burial ground. And, like, that's all you get of that. Except, like, at the very end, there's chanting. And you're like, maybe that's related. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, yeah there, were, there were parts in there that genuinely, like, I was actually scared of. Uh-huh. Um, towards the end where the... Uh, mother was just like running around in the hotel. Yeah. And you saw all of, like the the skeletons and stuff and she was running and it was just her annoying run. Yeah. Yeah, and towards the this... end Wendy was every corner she turned was something terrifying. Yeah. And, she, and like horrific. triple check where she's going and like, oh the, Yeah. You're gonna waste time doing that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You have this knife in your hand that's like three feet long. Yeah. And you're not gonna use it. <laughs> yeah. I know that. Yeah. And you're running like a like a weak little person, like they really made her feel it, it, yes weak and impotent and stuff, I think. 
they intentionally made her look, I think, very fragile. But it's interesting because she still wins, you know, like she still gets the the man, the paterfamilia. Yeah, the she sort of grows in, into it, but pretty quickly. Yeah. Though, um, she's not putting up with any bullshit. Right. Well, yeah. she is at first. Oh, she puts up with a lot. But then, yeah. <laughs> but then she turns on a yeah. dime, basically. She did get a good swing in with that bat. Yep. Yes. A couple good swings. Wasn't that one of the scenes, too? Um, we were kind of talking about this earlier, but uh, Stanley Kubrick is a really difficult director to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he specifically did not treat Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy in the movie, did not treat her very well and yeah. was actually fairly ab- abusive. I think that's one of the scenes they had to shoot at like a hundred and something times. Yeah. And it was like her crying and being emotional. So like it was a tough scene to film. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, they really, they really made it like super difficult for her on set um, constantly. And I think, I think Stanley Kubrick was like doing it intentionally to get a very worn down version of Shelley Duvall for the movie. I think he wanted that character to be that sort of worn out and haggard looking. And exasperated. And exa- yeah. yeah. And um, obviously it, it pays off in sort of a tragic way because I think audiences really hate Wendy. They think she's like mousy and weak and annoying. Um, even though she ends up like defeating her, you know, the, the male in this, in this story and saving her son and like doing all the heroic things that you aren't sure she'd be able to do. Yeah. It's like people can't forgive the first like 40 minutes where she's mousy. Yeah. That's all that they think about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's so, that's really sad. I mean, like, you know, I think me 10 years ago, struggled more with like overcoming that. And, and as I've gotten, as I'm like an old person now, it's like, I feel like I think about her much more sympathetically. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Like I, I, all I can do is be like, Oh my God, she, this is just torture. This whole thing is just torture for her. And she still comes out on top. Like it's so impressive. Yeah. I remember at a younger age, I also just found her annoying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now I just feel bad for her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. With that bit of uh, context um, in how they shot it and how they treated her on set, you definitely have a different perspective on how mousy and annoying she is. Cause, yeah. yeah. They, they definitely portray her like that. Right. So um, almost a new appreciation for her performance in general, you think? Absolutely. Uh, when you get that information, you think, okay. Um, what do you expect? Yeah. They made fun of her for months and months and months and treated her like she was dirt. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. But they, I mean, Stanley got what he wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is kind of, uh, it's kind of like the uh, old school torture type thing. Yeah. But, oh, well, I guess. But her outfits, though, they did <laughs> killer work on the outfits. Yeah. She was power clashing hard the whole time. She was like an 80s hipster. Yeah, she was like the, a proto-hipster. Um, did you, Andrew, watching it for your first time, did you, did you, was your first impression that she was really annoying? Like, was that your, not without knowing, like, how she was treated and everything, were you just like, God, this is like a really annoying game? Yeah, definitely at first. I yeah. thought she was the most annoying thing Yeah, in that film. Um it's too bad. I mean, once you told me right. yeah. the context, I'm like, okay, 
yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, not her fault. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. She just, uh, she's a wreck. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she was definitely annoying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just in her mannerisms too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was, if she was casted that way because that's how she ran, but yeah. holy cow. Yeah. Couldn't handle that. Yeah. While we're talking about Wendy um, too, I thought I would touch on the family dynamic because mm. I found that pretty interesting in the sense that there really wasn't any not yeah. in the movie. Yeah. It didn't start out super strong. You didn't get this idea that, you know, Jack and his son had a really close bond or that Jack and Wendy had a close bond at all. You never got like a loving family connection from that. And yeah. I think that was very purposeful. I think Kubrick was trying to do something different with this movie yeah. than was done in the book. So I don't think he did a lot had a lot of focus on um the characters' relationships with each other. At least not in like a soulful way. Oh no. She yeah. went about it in a completely different way. Yeah. Um very clinical. Yeah. Yeah. And very we, cold. Yeah. And we see them uh often isolated from each other. Yeah. We'll see Danny um, you know, as he's biking around the hotel, or we'll see Wendy doing whatever the heck Wendy does. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think everything. Yeah, think pretty much everything. She's like doing Jack's job. Jack signed on, but Wendy did all the work. Yeah, she's right. doing all the work. Just she's just writing. Wrote. Writing. Quote yeah. Unquote. So yeah. then we see him writing and his kind of adventures with ghosts at the bar and, and yeah, such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of like, and then it all, almost kind of becomes like a parody of a marriage. It's so. For sure, that, that dysfunctional. feels like such a yeah. dysfunctional, like, 60s or 70s, 50s type yeah. relationship between the husband and wife. She brings up, hey, I just want to talk to you. Like, I'm saying these very nonsensical, like, weather type questions with you. Right. And, and all you're this... saying is, what do you want me to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. He has a suppressed frustration. Yeah. That she... comes out. Yeah. Heavily. And increases in intensity. Yeah, he has such latent sort of... Uh, like disgust at her banality of her existence in his life. Like it's like the fact that she's there is like such a burden to him. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost feels like he thinks he's the smartest person in the room. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So everybody else is just kind of beneath yeah. him. Like and, a superiority kind yeah, of. Yeah. And I feel like he lets himself, he's better at suppressing those feelings when he's like around other people for the sake of, like, professionalism, when he's, like, with her, when it's, like, he's alone, technically. Yeah. yeah, like, he he lets that slip, and you can see his sort of in, inherent, like, self-serving egoism and stuff. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's... I would say that, like, there is a relationship between Wendy and Danny, like, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some warmth there. Maybe not from Danny to, to Wendy... Yeah. But she definitely, I think, exudes, like, a caring mother um, and a caring sure. wife. Like, I think she's she appears caring and, and, like, she's trying to take care of both of them and, and do everything. Right. There's sort of a one-sided, one-dimensional yeah. relationship from her to her husband. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she never would have complained about that. It's that her husband becomes psychotic and violent and that's what makes her like you know think that it's not okay but i think she would have just put up with that like because to her that is her life is 
that, you know, that family dynamic. And then, yeah, you're, you're right though. It's not about, I I feel like this movie is intentionally deconstructing Mm -hmm. the nuclear family. Like there's a lot of, especially horror movies where like they move into a new house or something. And it's sort of like about the family going Mm -hmm. through that. Um, and this movie is, it plays with that idea, but I think it approaches it from like a super like cold distance that you don't usually get in movies like that. And we don't really become attached to any of the characters much. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd feel like we get that classic Kubrickian kind of like, it's just very, very detached, very cold. People accuse his movies of being like super cold and distant and like sort of inhuman. And I, I think that's valid. It just doesn't make it a bad movie yeah. for me, but. And it comes across too in their conversation. Like, I know we were talking about that earlier, but yeah. their con- conversation in the movie and all the dialogue is so like banal and basic. And it's yeah. just, here's the line. And then here's the response to that line. It's also cut and dry. So oh yeah. Well, yeah. It's definitely not a Quentin Tarantino dialogue <laughs> type. Not at all. 15 minutes of just talking back and forth. Yeah. There's... This is just, Hey, the weather was great today or it's snowing hard, heavy today. Like, yeah. And then, like, and it's not just that. It's, like, there's, like, a weird, like, pre-recorded pause between each person talking to. It's, yeah. like, humans don't interact like that. Like, they talk over each other. There's this natural banter. And I know that when you have dialogue in movies, it's always going to be a little heightened. It's not always going to be, like, fully natural. Because then there would be, like, weird, awkward pauses. And people wouldn't know what they were going to say and stuff like that. But this movie was, like, truly... It was almost like they were reading, like, notes on simple dialogue of, like, the weather was nice today. Page turn. Right, like they just learned a new language. Yes, I agree. Yeah, like, it's like you're learning basic sentences in a different language. Like, it was that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's (laughs) definitely intentional. But Mm -hmm. as far as why he did it, I'm not... I don't feel like I, I have the you know, the wherewithal to say, I know why Stanley Kubrick did a thing. Like, right. Um, but you know I know he did it. Just I, not why I know he's a genius. Like I, there, I've no doubt that like, if he wanted to make dialogue be more natural, he would have done that, but that wasn't what he was going for. Right. It was a definitely a deliberate decision. Yeah. yeah that didn't choice. seem to be a major focus for him in this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did like, uh, Jack's mannerisms throughout the whole film. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, his eyebrow use is like... Jack I don't understand. He has it. such it's an just, expressive face. Yeah. yeah. You can just feel how little of a fuck he gives. Yeah. At every point. He's incredible. I mean, yeah. Jack Nicholson... Obviously. He's a legend actor. Right. Like, I, I feel like he can do no wrong. Um, obviously, you know, he defined the Joker role for a generation. Um... And arguably, I still think he's, like, as good as Heath Ledger in just a completely different way in that role. Um, I feel like he's always just killing it in everything he's in. And he's been great into his old age, I think, too. But this was really, like, peak Jack Nicholson uh, acting era, I yeah. think. Yeah, and Jack plays crazy very well yeah yeah and throughout the film as it progresses it just feels very on point his mannerisms go from all right he might have a little bit of a problem here to he definitely has a problem throughout 
Um, and you see that progress. Yeah. And I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I wanted to talk about how. We don't really see him look not crazy for very long, honestly, like right at the opening of the movie, even when he's speaking at his job interview. I mean, he's obviously not full blown crazy at that point, but just something about his mannerisms are very um, not genuine, kind of. Yeah. Um, a mild hint. Yeah. So we see. Oh, yeah. It's like foreshadowing. Yeah. Right. So we see this mild mannered version of Jack for like 15 minutes. Yeah. And then he goes from that to boom. And then he turns into this psychopath, basically. Yeah. Um, it's not. Yeah. It's not a very slow descent. No. Even though the movie itself, I think, is a bit of a slow burn. Yeah. I would agree with that. His too. transition from sane to psychotic is more of like a very thin line that quickly breaks like it's and i think that that's that's an interesting thing because i feel like jack nicholson already had a reputation before this movie came out for being someone who who like went all out in his roles he could go really crazy in his roles and i feel like it was sort of trying to set the scene of like you don't have to guess where this is going as an audience member. Like he shows up and then as on like a meta level, audience members are like, Oh, this is going to be bad. Cause like it's Jack Nicholson in the lead role. He's going to go crazy. And I think that that's an important note in itself because it's like Stanley Kubrick's not trying to trick anyone. He's not trying to lull us into a sense of like, security that this is like a safe place and then have things go bad it's like we just know from the beginning of the movie that things are going to go bad because like he gives us very quickly like ominous music jack nicholson's the lead role um very quickly going over like oh jack nicholson was like an abusive alcoholic father yeah there's not many reveals throughout right. the film you, you very quickly you know exactly what's yeah what you're and you see to. him Heading down to the bar. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, I see where this is going. Yeah. There's no booze there, but right. then he imagines there's booze yeah, there. Then there's yeah. booze there. And I yeah. thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, the conversation with the barman. Yeah. Uh, first, he didn't exist, and then, right. boom, flicked a switch. Yeah. He exists. And then he's creating all these stories and backgrounds for all these different people and drinking his face off. Yeah. Yeah. Which he's not supposed to be doing. Which is another interesting kind of level to this film, too. We have these two different two different things going on. We have Jack and his mental mental issues. And yeah. then we have the paranormal aspect. Yeah. And mm-hmm. those kind of meet. And it makes me also ask the question, did the hotel kind of bring this out of him? Would he, would he have gone mad anyways? Right. Or is he more susceptible um, to all the paranormal stuff because he's going mad? Yeah. And very interesting question. I think that it's I think it's intentional that like we see that there are two sides to that and we see that like part of the madness is something within him and we also see that like the hotel itself is its own sort of uh catalyst for for madness. Yeah. Because obviously there's a legacy here. Like 10 years ago the same thing happened. Um, with a different man, again, a white man with a family, nuclear family kind of situation. 
And I think that there's like a socioeconomic observation going on here too, because when, when Jack starts drinking and he starts envisioning the party scene and everything, his inherent supremacist ideals start sort of slipping out because we know that everything he's seeing is sort of like an internal projection. Like he's, he's making up like the contents of this ballroom and the conversation he's having, like, yes, it might be partially a ghost, but it's probably also like his mind is being projected outwards by the spirits there. Right. Which Um, raises kind of a lot of questions about like who our reliable observers are, because then we also have Danny seeing different stuff in different parts of the hotel doing his own thing. So, yeah. And, and I think that that is to say like the hotel draws out any supernatural stuff that like there's paranormal stuff inherently there, but the, the way that that would be experienced is open. It's, it's subject to the person that is like, it's happening to. Um, so Danny sees the woman in the tub as like a horrific old woman corpse that's like bloated and scary. But when Jack first goes in, he sees her as a sexualized being. He's going to go in there clasp some cheeks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then it becomes some ghost cheeks. Ghost cheeks. <laughs> and then it becomes uh, cheeks he doesn't want to be clapping. Um, that was bad. Yeah, it was bad. It was a, it was a real turn there. Um, and horrific to him, obviously, but only at a certain point. So it's like, it is interesting to think like, why did he see something first and then see something different? What was deceiving him? Um, was that something inside himself that, that transition? And then during the scene in the, in the bathroom during the, in the ballroom, when he's talking to the previous, um, you know, housekeeper, uh, he mentions, you know, that guy uses derogatory racial slur. Um, and when Jack's talking to the barkeeper, he talks about how like women are a big problem, you know, like, oh, women can't, can't live with him, can't live without him. And I feel like, you know, he, he basically is putting all his, the, you know, he's redirecting anything that could be his fault onto some other group. And that's like a classic, obviously white man thing. The fact that it was a native, uh, native American burial ground that they had to repel attacks because white people built a giant hotel on their, on their sacred land. You know, the, the defamation and the desecration of like other groups, um, getting sidelined by white people, and they're that's just historically a thing that they've done is like colonialism and and cultural rape and all this stuff that white people have done. I feel like there's a message there that maybe only Stanley Kubrick is making and Stephen King didn't make like because I didn't read it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, Plus, I'm sure viewers have a lot of their own interpretations, yeah. as always. Um, also, though, while we're talking about that scene um, at one point, he, the butler looks at Jack and asks, or tells him, you have always been the caretaker? Mm-hmm. Why does he say that? Well, because it's spooky. That creeped me out. So clearly, <laughs> that, spook meter. 
Five off the chart. Yeah, <laughs> so that that moment I think is really relevant to in or it's a it's like called back again in the in the final shot. Right. When you see that he was like there at the party, that party in that the nineteen twenties. Yeah. Which yeah. is like basically like around when the when the overlook was made. Right. Yeah. So as to why he said you've always been here. To me, that's like a general, like you're getting into the mythology of like, what is a ghost world like and, and what is like. Yeah, I mean, like. that's kind of what I wonder. Is he saying, you know, you've always been the caretaker, like it was always meant to be that this you were going to come here and do this. This mm-hmm. happened. But then we see that shot at the end and he's like there in the 20s. Yeah. So, no, he's literally just supposedly always been the caretaker. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think Very- that that's. Uh, unanswered question there. And yeah, obviously they left it like that for a reason. But I mean, you could yeah, you could argue that's like a time travel question at that point. Cause See, I like, wondered that too, and then I was like, am I, I now? I'm just getting like way out of. <laughs> well, I feel like it's it's supposed to be like a thing that you can't. Yeah, our minds couldn't interpret. Right. Like it's something that maybe if you died and you were like in the spirit world, you could see that it would make sense to you, but like. As, as like mortals with finite existences, I think maybe we're not supposed to understand it, and maybe it's supposed to be abstract to a certain degree. Yeah. But I do think that like if you, there's probably a logic there as to like, oh, he, you know, when you go there, you become a part of like the collective of the whole history, like gestalt history consciousness of this sort of animated building and you know it incorporates you into its history even though you weren't literally physically there you you become part of its legacy it's been part of its you know lifeblood and stuff and then at the same time that i i feel like once you've entered that realm of like you're dead now and your spirit is part of this place um linear time sort of goes away And you just become a part of the whole spectrum of, like, the existence of this place. And maybe there's even, like, Native American mythology that talks about the cyclical nature of time. And, like, that that would hint at what that means exactly. But as far as, like, just watching the movie and then having an interpretation, my interpretation is, like, you die and then you become a part of the entire... Mm-hmm. existence in both directions of time yeah. of this place and obviously jack torrance of like 1980 wasn't there at the ball in 1920 but maybe he became there like After maybe the that maybe that party is literally only exists in like the psycho sphere like in within you know the, okay now we're getting really deep. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is crazy. Guys. We could go spiraling way down this hole. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was kind of thinking that once, like, you kill someone in there, maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. It, once you spill bloodshed, it seems like a big theme in there. Obviously, with the oh, yeah. elevator scene. Um, so maybe that's why he was thrown in. You yeah, know, a little shout out to the nineteen twenty one photo. Yeah, I don't know. Speaking of bloodshed, can we talk about how? The gentleman that was in Florida, I cannot remember the character's name. Scamming oh, Brothers' Scamming. character, yeah. Yeah, his character. Yeah, yeah. 
Can we talk about how we follow him all the way from Florida to Denver just so he can get murdered in the lobby? Real quick. When he gets there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty untimely. A uh, very interesting move. Some kind of big throwaway character. And it's too bad because I, I, I like it. Like, He's definitely significant, but I... But, like, the way they they end him in the lobby, yeah. it just felt like a throwaway, like, to what could have been much more. I feel like it was kind of an F you to the audience, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it feels like we're supposed to see either well, he's, like, a salvation figure or that the struggle would be longer between, like, once he gets there and him just dying. Right, and then they just kill the kind of hope the salvation yeah like instantly <laughs> yeah i felt like maybe you could train uh danny a little bit more on what it is to you know have that power to shine yeah, yeah. to shine yeah and so he would show up and boom save the day maybe you'd take on uh jack and obviously that but maybe you're right it was pretty big like fuck you the audience and i'm just like a scorned lover of the film i don't know <laughs> pissed it, off. it is really interesting like you know that that you you I at least I sort of wonder when I watch this movie like, you know, are the the gifts of the hotel that is giving to Jack are they like slowly building and he's becoming more potent and more powerful and it's I think sort I of, would say that for sure and it's sort of mm-hmm. like a battle of like he levels up. yeah of like supernatural good versus supernatural evil. And the good is like in the form of Scatman Crawler's character and Danny, because like they have this ability and they can communicate and they and they use it to get there. But then, you know, the dark power that is sort of imbued in in Jack's character murders Scatman. And then like it's just over. It's like snuffed out immediately. Mm-hmm. Um but in a sense, like it, in a fatalistic sense, he did save them because he brought the he brought other vehicle it, yeah. there and they were able to get out using that. So oh, that's true. It's like he's still ma- it still mattered that he came back. Um, not only that, but like he also like took Jack away from Wendy when he arrived because Jack like heard him arrive and right. then went to deal with it. Yeah, he served as like a distraction. Yeah, he was like a distraction. So. In a sense, he did save them. Right, it wasn't all for naught. Right, even though... It's not how he envisioned it. <laughs> for his own life, he, it did just end. But if you think about things as like, you know, butterfly effect causality, and right. that he arrived, and his intention was to save them, he did do that. Um, it's just that he died in the process. But, you know, I don't know if that was... If he knew that was going to happen the whole time, you know, like, I don't know what The Shining lets you know and lets you see. Right. He certainly seemed shocked. So I don't know if he, I mean, I'm sure maybe he sometimes sees things that are going to happen. I don't think he saw that in particular. Yeah. I don't know if he did either. And maybe that's the hotel shielding that event from him, like, so that he can't stop it. Right. Because they have their own shine really right he was saying like there's good shine and there's bad shine. yeah like that's sort of what he was saying at the beginning so it's sort of like jack had been imbued with like the bad shining and became like an agent of that of that willpower and he overcame the good shining in that moment but yeah obviously it's speculative it's not 
there's nothing clear cut about it because there's almost no dialogue. Like this movie has huge chunks of time where no one says anything, mm-hmm. um, which I love. I think it's like great mood setting and the score is like so good. I think it really works for this film because the dialogue, frankly, like they didn't try. It yeah. Like, or whatever know, they did. Like we like, said, it's very cut and dry. So yeah. why have them talk a lot? Yeah. But yeah. I, the, I thought the score was really, uh, really cool. Yeah. Um, Obviously, in that day, you didn't just hit a button and have stuff happen. Right. Uh, you had to have unconventional methods of, you know, like the teapot sounding noise whenever uh, Danny was running into like a ghost. Yeah. I thought that was really chilling. <laughs> teapot sound. It sounded like yeah, a No, it does. I, yeah. It does. Why yeah. That's how I envisioned them actually making that they noise happen. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool and inventive and obviously that's just how I had to do it. But, yeah. Um, that was pretty refreshing. Yeah. Uh, an older film I don't usually watch the older films so. yeah, yeah yeah which is why it's fun to show them to you right I love hearing your interpretation yeah, yeah. that being said too are there any scenes in particular or moments that kind of stuck with you a little bit or stood out more uh, I, I think the two little girls stuck with me quite a bit and mm-hmm. I thought there would be more to them happening in the end of the film rather than just in the middle and when they first got to the hotel type thing mm-hmm. uh, yeah Obviously, like the iconic scene where Jack's face is like showing through the bathroom door. Yeah. Um, but those are pretty much it. I mean, obviously, there's. I want to say more here, but I'm kind of. Drawn yeah, I'm sure you, you're still digesting too. We literally just finished yeah, watching just this. Because <laughs> you you'd seen. I mean, like you had seen those images before, right? Of the girls and the here's right, John. Right. Not the girls, but the here's John. Here's, okay. Okay. Yeah. So who hasn't seen that one? Right. Did you? When it happened in the movie, did it feel like what you thought that scene would be in your mind, or did it feel like different, or had you thought about like the context of that at all, or not at all actually? Okay, so it was like I super... didn't know that he. I mean, I had a feeling he had probably an axe of some sort in yeah. his hands, and <laughs> yeah. he was in maybe a malice type yeah. situation where he may be feeling some murder in his future, <laughs> um, feeling a bit of murder. Trying to commit some some dying, yeah, and yeah. Uh, but I I had no idea like that he was trying to you know break down the door and kill his wife mm-hmm. yeah. type thing and also kill his son that was he thought was still in there yeah yeah and do we, like the had you thought about like the tone of that scene or did like seeing it in context did it feel like the image that you'd always seen or did it like change your perspective of it, it brought it more to life. Up. Yeah, it brought it more to life. They gave more color to the situation, because um, you, you see it, and that's kind of one of those iconic film scenes yeah, yeah. Uh, that you've seen over the years. And me never knowing what actually happened before and after, I was like, "Oh, that's, that's a pretty cool, cool uh, photo there, guy." But yeah. uh, I have no idea what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but definitely very cool. Uh, yeah, it's a great scene. So I have another question. Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, I feel like I usually kind of look at films in two different ways. One is like the entertainment aspect and the other half is like the art of it. The message. And some films lean heavily towards one and not the other. Some can do both. Anyways, I'm wondering, did you actually enjoy watching it? Like entertainment factor? Oh, did yeah. you like it? I was, I liked it. I was scared at points. Um, it made me think a little bit. 
I thought Danny Lloyd, the the son, was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, I feel like for such a young actor with a big role, that's gonna be really tough. Because you're a kid, you have no real body of work. You may not understand everything that that director is telling you to do. Yeah. Especially like complex, like fear-based yeah. performances where he's like, and he's also gonna play as like this little demon thing that yeah, in his yeah. mouth. Where he's like, you're gonna be like a, a gibbering wreck, you know, like that. So, like, how, how does how do you get a kid you're to just do that? Say murder backwards. Yeah, I want or like minutes. you know, I want you to shake your head and drool, like you know, like I don't know what he said to stare into the void. Yeah, just but you know, <laughs> well, you've lot. you've thought about your own existence a lot, right? As <laughs> right. Kid, you know, like I don't know what he said what do you know to like death? get him to yeah. And there's, like, scenes where he's, like, laying in bed and his eyes are just, like, insane. Those are actually some of my favorite, like, visuals from the movie are, like, him just right... The camera's right in his face and he's just, like, in a scream but you don't hear Terror. it. Yeah. And it's, like, cutting to violence and cutting back to his face and, like... The, I feel like those inspired so many horror movies since this. Like... Yeah, absolutely. That visual sort of, like, quick jump cuts... Uh, misplaced audio, you know, like that whole dynamic of like when Danny's having visions and we're seeing Danny having visions. It's like, I feel like movies forever have borrowed that the way that that is shot in this movie. But yeah. He did do a great job. I mean, yeah. And I think all of that kind of um, leads to the fact that the entertainment factor was definitely there. I mean, that's why it's such a classic with like, mainstream audiences as well yeah so it works well as a film in that sense but then also i think which was kubrick's kind of um concentration was a more art approach yeah for sure um the camera work like the steady cam it's so good it's so good like following i mean he uses it a lot of times but the one that stands out the most when you think about this movie is following Danny biking around the hotel on the tricycle which is really great so cool the sound too of him going on rugs back on hard yeah oh that was so good it's so symbolic like I I, I didn't think you could really capture that back like almost 40 39 years ago yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's he he was a trendsetter I mean Kubrick was a visual trendsetter and I feel like he invented so many things that had become common practice in film but like you take for granted that someone had to make that happen for the first time. And a lot of it was Kubrick for the first time. He, he was an incredible visual innovator. And yeah, like on a visual level, this movie is very artistic. And yeah. It's beautiful. The shot of the labyrinth, like mm-hmm. the maze, um, you know, you see it as they're in it. And there's a lot of shots of like following them around inside it. But then there's like that huge wide open shot from the top, which is like maybe we're looking at a model that's been like yeah. animated. Mm. Like I can't tell exactly how he did it. And then you're like looking at Jack Nicholson over the model and mm-hmm. he's just like watching the model and it you feel like he's watching them through it and stuff. Like Yeah, I love that actually. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Like I, I, I loved everything about like the outdoors of that yeah. situation. It just the, the wintery feel. Yeah. You really felt like you were in there and you're just like, this is freezing cold. Yeah. yeah and no, it, 
there's no way around it. And I, I was also thinking as Danny was running through the, the maze away from Jack, I'm thinking, you, you idiot human boy, like you have snow. You have to, he's going to be able to just follow your tracks. But and then, then there he is. It. He fixes it. He yeah. it out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Smart You're a smart little seven-year-old. Yeah. I felt more claustrophobic in that maze than I did inside that hotel, which is interesting because yeah. you're outside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I kind of did too. I, I felt like, oh, okay, well, we're stuck here. Also, it's like, like 13 foot high. Yeah. Ridges. There are parts of the hotel that look enormous. Mm-hmm. So like, that's probably part of that too. I feel like actually some of the most chilling external shots are just the establishing shots of like when before the snow hits Mm -hmm. of just the hotel like from the woods and all its grandeur and you can like hear the hear the you know (laughs) you can hear birds and like you know like a lone loon or something whatever that bird is i can't remember but it's like there are like maybe two shots of like that same angle and it's like wow they're is nothing else there like they're other than that building they're just in the woods um which i really liked i thought that was a really powerful isolating feature of the movie also just like how long the shots are of them getting there driving alone on the road through the mountains and like you know like there's the shot of them talking about like how thin the air is because they're so high up and like Mm -hmm. It's just, the, I think the movie does, like, a really good job of setting up how completely isolated they are. Yeah. It does a great job of giving you, or conveying the isolation yeah. in that way. And then, again, between the family members also. So, yeah. Yeah. And then also, like, you know, Scatman Crothers, when he's, like, coming back, and all the footage of him just, like, being in the car with him driving feels very isolated too because like he's driving through storms so there's like almost no visibility outside the car and inside the car he's just not talking he's just driving alone it's very like mundane shots kind of but i feel like that really serves the purpose of like there's just nothing going on like it's just him in there alone in the car it very much set the tone yeah and it brought me back to like cold drives where oh yeah it felt so relatable yeah snowy yeah. Yeah. And oh, like that was very good. the camera like slowly panning over like the eighteen wheeler that had come off the road and stuff, like you know, whenever you see an accident like that in the snow, it feels just like that shot. Like the way that was shot, it feels exactly like For sure. Someone like rubbernecking as they're driving past an accident on the highway in the snow. Rubbernecking like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. How am I still going if they're off the road? Yeah. And it's yeah. It was just really really well done as far as like big mood (laughs) as the kids are saying 